Let's sit. Let's learn. Let's evolve. Let's talk. No more whispering in our minds. Today is Let's Talk Arts with your host, Rachel Sara. Today I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we are broadcasting, pay my respects to elders past and present, and extend that welcome to all mob who are listening. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk Black Arts. I swear every Thursday morning I'm so happy with the next guest that we have. We have had some incredible guests so far this year and honestly it's still heating up. It's still getting hot in here. I feel like for this guest the lights are quite bright and I feel like we need to bring them down a little bit to get the right vibe. <laughs> but today we are joined by the incredible artist, musician, performer, Dancing Water, we know you as. And yeah. today I've just discovered your name, Nads. Nads, Nadine. Love that. How are you? Good. I've been sweating all day in the Brisbane heat, but I'm good. Oh, honestly. <laughs> Join the club. Join the club. Um, now, we start every episode with the same question, who your mob is, where you grew up, and your pronouns. So my uh, tribes are the Minyambo, Yogambe, and Gurengurreng, Gugialinji nations and language groups and... Pronouns, uh, she, they. Deadly. Mm. I didn't realise, but I'm also growing grain. That's hey. deadly. Hi, cousin. Yeah. <laughs> Get into it. Now, I did mention you are a poet, a musician, performer, all round just like energy that mm. you're embodying right now. But for those who may not be familiar with your work, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be dancing water? Well, the name comes from my dad. He's a, uh, I've yarned about this before, he's an elder down in Northern Rivers Ways where our mm. tribes are from and he, you know, he doesn't really yarn to you, he just teaches you the whole time. Yeah. You don't know how to have a, a normal conversation. It's just teaching, teaching, teaching. Yeah. And then he told me my name is Dancing Water, spirit name. And then a few years down the track actually, that was at ni- when I was 19. And then 25, I... We just hang around a lot of musicians, just constantly being around music and a lot of my friends that were in bands. And I was like, I, w- I want to do that too. I'm really tired of not seeing things that I want to hear, so I will be it. And mm. then I started the band Dancing Water as a solo thing. And then I got some friends that I've known for 10 years and they joined and now they're still in the band. So it's been like three years now of us doing this. I love that. And I love that your dad gave you that beautiful name. I always curse my parents because Rachel Sara to me is not a cool brand name at all. (laughs) And then I tried to lean on my last name, but then people just call me Sarah now. So I'm just like, oh, the worst branding decision. But anyway, I digress. Now, the solo career, obviously, I did like how you say you were sick of not hearing or seeing so you became it. Mm. That's so powerful. And it's something that a lot of, of us mob have kind of had no choice but to take up that power and make that space. Mm. What does that sort of process look like for you? Painful. Yeah. Painful. Like it's not rainbows and sunshine at all. It's like you or your blackness against the world or against the colony, basically. I feel like that's a normal, unfortunately relatable thing and reoccurring thing for First Nation women. We're just constantly having to fight the intersections of racism and misogyny. And so we're just doing it on our own. Mm. So I was like, 
I have no choices. Yeah. So this is the only option I can see that I can speak my truth now. Mm. So I'm going to do it and it's it's worked. (laughs) It absolutely has worked. And I think for a lot of us who have absorbed some of your work and, you know, I was listening to White Noise on the way here, just getting in the in the mood Mm. but it is so powerful and the words that you use are just so cutting in a way Mm. that it creates a fire within us mob Mm. but it's also just really like a call to action in a way Mm. is that obviously I can guess the answer but that's something that you look to do in most of your work yeah sometimes on purpose sometimes it's just Life. <laughs> sometimes it's just vibes I'm like this is how I feel and this is my lived reality and like most of the time it's just an open diary of what I'm talking to myself about and what I want to see happen and yeah an open diary of just like a multifaceted First Nation woman you know because we're mm. so put in a box of a certain way you know so it's just my diary and I'm just writing about it and hopefully and I've seen it happen before I've got like young black women come up to me after shows and they're just like oh my god it's like a breath of fresh air I'm like yes this is for us like Mm. this is for you and me to just get rid of all these stereotypes that are on us or feeling like we have to hold ourselves back from doing certain things or dressing a certain way or you know looking a certain way it's like Mm. nah it's there's no other option at this point and we'll be judged anyways so yeah like I write for my mob and just to kind of stir trouble up as well because I like to do that good ways though like I feel like it's in the best ways yeah I that's what I was going to say as well like a lot of artists and like even myself, I'm guilty of it. Like sometimes we can fall into a phase of creating work that we know is going to be received a certain way Mm. in order to pay bills. Mm. However, the beauty of your work, I think it's just so unapologetically like you and like you mentioned, you're doing it for you, you're doing it for your mob. Mm. Obviously it's not easy out there to be a black woman, let alone a black creative woman. Mm. How do you kind of juggle that relationship with like choosing the work that you produce and the work that you take on and surviving in this world? I'm very careful, I feel, and it can come across quite like guarded, but I am very careful with what I'm writing and putting out. Like there's some stuff we've recorded that I've kind of kept down for a little bit for a few years, but Mm. I'm being careful just within cultural ways respectfully of my own mob first. Um, I think that's the only thing I'm really trying to be respectful of. Any everyone else, I don't care. Um, <laughs> Love good that. ways, um, <laughs> respectfully. Good ways. We're going to say good ways about ten times <laughs> during this. Um, but yeah, I think it's just I'm always thinking about mob as well when it comes to writing mm. and whatever I'm thinking as well. I feel like all of us are thinking as well. We just need to have one person just throw the first thing and let that ripple effect go, you know. But it's always respect for mob first before any creative thing gets put out. And so when you're writing, you mentioned it is like a diary. Mm. 
Is there, I mean, obviously lived experiences is a huge factor in your work, but is there an environment that brings out those emotions and those feelings in order to create work? Or is it like, are you more isolated? Are you around more? What does that look Mm. like? I think it's, when I'm in the writing process, it's definitely in solitude. I I spend a lot of time by myself just because I like to do that. Mm. Um, But it is also like a collective of different experiences throughout my life that come into that solitude where I can just put it down and write it all down, read it back to myself, kind of have a conversation and just see how I feel about it. Or Mm. that's how I felt at that point. Like, oh my gosh, you know what I mean? Just holding a mirror up as well, you know, but most, most of the time when it's the creative process, it's by myself. Mm. Yeah. And so once it gets to that phase of taking it out into the world, letting Mm. it grow up and become, you know, one that's made it to the real world. Mm. What does that process look like? You mentioned you're doing it for your mob and you want to be respectful to your mob first. Do you have, I guess, a group of people that you lean on to, I guess, get approval to put music out or is it a gut feeling? Mm. It's, I've got a close group of friends that have been with me before music and before I started helping with, like, activism here in Maganjan as well. Mm. Um, they've seen me go through all the phases and ebbs and flows, so I trust their judgment and they've seen me just flourish now, so they are the ones that I, you know, have anxiety mm. towards. I'm like, what do you think of this? Is this too much? Mm. Or is this too angry? Like, what do you think about this? And they're just like, it's yours. Like, yeah. it's your stuff, like who am I to tell a black woman what to do? Yeah. I'm like, okay, there, there you go. Done. Yeah. I don't need any more. Yeah. And you're definitely not hiding behind metaphors. You're very matter of fact, like straight for the jugular in many ways, Yeah, which I think is refreshing in mm. so many ways and powerful. And for me listening to it, it's like a way to take that power and create that space. And it's, mm. you just don't care in one sense, but it's weird because it's driven from a deep sense of care. Yeah. That's what I mean, multifaceted. Like all this black rage that I like to call it, it the root of it is love and so mm. much care. And I think when I say I don't care about things, it's the things that are inevitably going to um, oppress our people. That's mm. who I don't care about. That's what I don't care about. I don't care about the temporary colonial idea of how life should be for First Nation people, Mm. um, that's what I don't care about. Yeah. White noise, one might say. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So on that note, though, you have two huge songs that I want to talk about, Mm. ACAB and White Noise. Mm. Now, like, again, it's just a way that you've been able to articulate what a lot of mob feel mm. in a way that's like still such like it's a jam. Like it's mm. it pops off, I gotta <laughs> say. So like obviously grappling with a deep sense of emotion and almost like I wouldn't say responsibility because it's not always up to you to have that responsibility, but you've chosen to play that role. Mm. Like what does that I guess how are you feeling about carrying that on your shoulders? Um, I don't think I really signed up for any type of responsibility. I think it's just a duty for Mm. us mob that 
know that we can ha- we have the capacity to to kind of be a voice. Mm. And I didn't really sign up for it. I was just doing. Yeah, I just got yeah. into music because it was there for me. Yeah, at a really hard time. But I think I am taking on that responsibility. I do click into it sometimes. Like, oh my gosh, I do have a responsibility because people are listening, um, especially black fellas. And I, like I said, that respect goes there first. So. I want to make sure that, you know, we are listened to. We're mm-hmm. heard. Yeah. Especially First Nation women. I'm going to keep repeating it. For First Nation women, we're just constantly silenced or just told to be a certain way, like I said before. But mm. I, I do go in and out of that realisation of responsibility sometimes because I am just, you know... I'm just one black fella mm. amongst so many of us that are storytellers, you know. Yeah. And it's almost just a way for you to assert your sovereignty. Mm. So many of us have different, I guess, ways of being and creating. But what does sovereignty mean to you and, like, how does that play out in your work? I think it's, for me, sovereignty... <clears throat> Obviously, in a political sense, it means that we have agency over our land and Mm. our cultural ways and to the right to speak our mother tongue, the right to be with our tribes and discuss things amongst our tribes. But sovereignty as well as embodying that agency. Like I, I want to embody every part of my blackness in the way that I talk, the way that I present Mm. myself. Not that I want to present myself as well because I'm I'm stubborn, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I just embody my truth as a First Nation person, mm. um, yeah, in every sense, walk, talk, feelings, presenting, you know. Creating. Creating. That. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's so beautifully put because a lot of us, our creative work is just an extension of who we are and mm. I know for, for a lot of us, particularly black creatives, uh, the mental well-being of ourselves can go up and down and it can create amazing work and it can mm. also kind of stop that work. Mm. So do you ever feel burnout or just a, a lack of inspiration or creativity? I feel burnt out, but I don't feel like there's lack of anything because we're just so rich in culture there's so much for us to tell Mm. whether it's our own tribe stories um or there's so much inspiration everywhere I feel there's no lack of it but I think there is a burnout because we get told to shut up Mm. you know what I mean or you know we're constantly seeing the numbers go up with black deaths in custody that we just feel so sad that we just can't create sometimes but Mm. that's our right to rest as well. Yeah. But that art and creativity has always been in us for 60,000 years, Mm -hmm. so I don't think there will be a lack of or any time stopping, you know. Yeah, I love that. And I recently have been, and maybe not so recently, but increasingly within our community, I've been hearing the whole term of like imposter syndrome. And Mm. lots of people are kind of like, I feel like I've got imposter syndrome Would you, and I very much don't subscribe to that label necessarily. I Mm. think it's more the reality of living in the colony as a black creative. Mm. Is that something that you would, I guess, agree with? 
I have felt <clears throat> not, I guess, safe in certain spaces where I feel like I am like an imposter in this space, especially with certain genres. I've supported certain people that it wasn't my mm. space to be in as a First Nation person or I wasn't welcome. So I thought, oh, I'm not meant to be here. Like mm. this isn't mine, you know, but I've definitely felt that in certain ways of femininity and expression of femininity as well and how that's supposed to look for black women and, you know, I, I've scrapped that, you know what I mean? So mm. I've definitely felt that before the imposter syndrome and that's more common than, you know, usual. Yeah. Mm. And I loved what you said about you didn't feel like it was your space mm. and that to me is a testament to a deep sense of of knowing who you are and knowing where you connect to. Mm. A lot of young people coming up, particularly in this creative industry, have to figure out who they are while still having their external influences of creating a brand or Mm. becoming a musician, putting out music to appeal to a market to get that support. Mm. You obviously do such a great job of like we said, not caring but still caring deeply. Mm. Do you have any advice for young people in terms of navigating the industry and, like, navigating who they are in this, like, I guess walking in multiple worlds? I think just making sure you realise that, like, this is your land, first of all. Yeah. And not second-guessing that gut feeling, that, that, that sacred, that sovereign intuition that, you know, wherever you go... Your ancestors come with you and, yeah, don't second-guess yourself. Don't think that you're an imposter in any space and, yeah, make sure you've got that crew of people that really see your heart mm-hmm. and, and you trust if you need a second opinion, you know. Yeah. And you mentioned that a few times, you know, how Dancing Water started off as like a solo gig and then having that group of people around you, I'm sure that extends to the band that you have around you. Mm. What does that collaborative process look like? Uh, with the boys that I've got in the band now, we've they are one of the people that have known me before music, before any of this stuff. So a lot of it is just fun uh, you know, messing around and just trying to see what we can come up with. And I write all the music. So um, <clears throat> I think it's a fun process with us anyways. Mm. And like, yeah, it's never, it's never a bad time with the guys when we're starting to create something. And that's how ACAB came out anyways. It was just us messing around in rehearsal space and just pretending to rap and then <laughs> and then ACAB came out. That's so deadly. Yeah. <laughs> and you've had a huge year in 2023. You've also performed at Woodford. Mm. Now, we get so caught up in, I guess, the struggle a lot of the time because we are so – we have to be resilient. We have to be strong. Mm. But is there a moment – in 2023 that just embodied black joy? Hmm. I think when I was on stage in Woodford, I saw my family in the crowd that are from Northern Rivers Mm -hmm. and that I didn't know that they were going to be there and I saw them in the crowd and I, you know, held up the mob flag and the Palestine flag and Mm. I just danced around. That's the only time I felt like mad black freedom up there on stage. Mm. I didn't know anybody. I was like, this, this is 
this is freedom to me when I'm on stage singing. Mm. And when my family's there too, I'm like, yep, this is where I feel good. I love that. Mm. And so obviously heading down to Nam, that is taking dancing water across Australia. What is it like touring with that? I find the audience, the audiences, they register us differently all around the East Coast and down, even down to Nam. Nam is stereotypically way more progressive when it comes to seeing black front women. And uh, I wouldn't say the same for North Queensland. We've <laughs> played a few festivals up in Coranda and, um, yeah, I don't think they like loud black women. They just want you to be peaceful, hippie mm. energy, and I'm just not that. Um, Brisbane, it still has the, you know, trickles of how it used to be because it is a city for punk and metal back in the day. There's a book actually called Pig City and it talks about all the punk scenes that mm. used to come out of McGungeon. And it still has that conservative neo-Nazi uh, energy when it comes to seeing black women uh, take the stage and own her shit. Uh, <laughs> but... Yeah, we get registered differently depending on how racist the town is or not. Mm. You know, we played at Dark Mofo down in Tassie and our set got cut in half um, because of noise complaints, apparently. But like the same Dark Mofo that had the activation that wanted First Nations blood in it. Yes, <laughs> correct. That one, that one, that one. <sighs> um, so, yeah, it just depends on how they feel about First Nation women, women screaming like a cab on stage yeah. or not, you know. So it's like wild to be out of platform First Nations blood, but you can't First Na- <laughs> you can't platform First Nations women, women and rage. Yeah, no, it's um they're very selective on what they want. <laughs> what they want to see and hear. Um but yeah, all the stereotypes come along with Every time I'd get off stage, someone would try to tell me, uh, look, that was quite violent. You're very violent and you're very intense and you know, you don't like white people and it's like, okay, what else would you like me to do? Mm. Uh, I just, you have everything at your feet. Why can't I just say what I, mm. it's on my mind. It's just a song to being quite sensitive white man, you know. Mm. So um, I've had that quite a lot throughout playing in this band. I have copped a lot of racism and misogyny together um, and all the lovely stereotypes that come along with being in a neo-soul slash punk band just because there's not many around so-called Australia, you know, mm. and being a black girl with tattoos on her face and her body, I don't think that they're ready to see something like that. And yeah. um, that makes me happy. I'm doing the right thing. Yeah, I'm just like, sounds good to me. <laughs> like, go and conquer. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. Making um, people uncomfortable. Mm. That makes me very happy. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I want to quickly switch gears a little bit because I feel like you're absolutely a powerful person to comment on this. We are seeing, obviously, blackfellas standing in solidarity with Palestine Mm. and we (laughs) we have seen some leaked chats coming up primarily <clears throat> from creatives. Mm. What is going through your mind when you're reading that? Or have you read it? Um, I've seen it and I 
personally, um, if you don't feel disgusted by it at this point, um, I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> um, but I think it's, it's, it's just people are fooled at this point. I just think it's absolutely sad to go past the Black Lives Matter movement to seeing the referendum to seeing what's happening in Palestine now and you're still choosing, willfully choosing to uh, go towards a direction of benefiting white supremacy mm. and Zionism. And it's um, if you don't feel disgusted, embarrassed, uh, shame, those aren't all particularly bad emotions, but like that's a, a an invitation, I guess, to an open door to change something, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I'm quite disgusted in some of the creators. I'm not going to be um, sugarcoating it mm. at all. I think it's quite disgusting. But the numbers of people that are so pro Palestine's freedom and sovereignty, I think that's just it. It, it overshadows mm. any of that hate, you know. Yeah. Any of that disgusting behavior yeah all over the world globally you know and so mm. I want to also touch on because Dr. Chelsea Watergo and um, Dr. David Singh also mentioned it uh, earlier in the year around Nova Paris's uh, rejection of the fact that First Nations mob can stand with Palestine there are obviously different lived experiences but mm. at the core of it it is a, a deep sense of rage against genocide. Mm. Mm. It's it's not, at the end of the day, if you have like a soul to realise that this is, uh, this is violence, this is occupation, this is colonisation, mm. this is innocent children, mothers and fathers and families being torn apart, if, if you can just see that for what it is... Um, it's not about if, you know, First Nation people, this and that, you know what I mean? Mm. It's let's not put it down to these boxes at this point. There's people um, pulling their children out of rubble mm. and families and mothers um, having to give birth with no anesthetics, you know? Mm. that's There's literally no normal. hospitals left. No hospitals left. Like, this is not normal. Like, and we should not normalise it because we're getting so desensitised by it on the internet, mm. you know? We should be crying. Yeah. You know. And also part of the reason why we wanted to bring Let's Talk Black Arts to the forefront mm. is because we understand there is such a power in creativity to create social change, to mm. create awareness. What role do you think creatives can play in advocating for Palestine? I think for one, talking about it on stage, that is such... A platform quite literally you're on stage talking to a lot of people in the mm. crowd but then also looking at Palestinian uh, poets and musicians and see what they're talking about as well mm. it's it's not so much about our words but listening to theirs as well there's so many beautiful Palestinian poets and mm. poetry going around at this point and that solidarity in our stories just kind of similar, you know, parallel to mm. each other, I think elevating Palestinian voices can be one way that we can advocate for them as well. Yeah. Yeah. And in that resistance, we're building collective strength. And yep. 
on a spiritual way too, mm. you know. It's not just our, our, our tongue is so powerful and we don't even realise it because of the colony. We, mm. we speak of each other's struggle and acknowledge each other's struggle and, and strength as well. It, can, it, it moves within the spiritual realm, I feel. Mm. I feel. Absolutely. Mm. I think that's a powerful way to end our conversation. Mm. Uh, but if people would like to engage more in the work that you do, where can they find you? can find me at McGungeon around the corner. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, I'm oh sure gosh. they will. <laughs> <laughs> We're all on the social medias, interwebs, all that mm-hmm. annoying stuff. Um, but you can find us there and we're heading down to Nam actually for Brunswick Music Festival in March. So yeah. we're going to travel down there for a little bit and make some noise, bring some black rage down there. Deadly. I mm. love that. Well, Thank you so much, Nads, mm. or otherwise known as Dancing Water. Thank you so much for joining us. And and that has been another episode of Black Arts. But I think a beautiful takeaway from today is individually, how can we carry that black rage and just make it create a sense of change and a sense of shared action and, and shared healing. So thank you yeah. so much. Thanks for having me, Tid. Yeah. And if you need some inspiration on how Black Rage can create that power, we're going to go out with a recording from the Abolish Racism uh, event from last year. And we'll see you next Thursday for another episode of Black Arts. Until then, stay deadly. No more whispering in our mind. Let's talk Monday to Friday at 9am on AAA Murray Country, the National Indigenous Radio Service and iHeartRadio. You can catch up on AAA.org.au, proudly supported by the Community Broadcast Foundation.